Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Boel, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Ben Stiller's black comedy, The Cable Guy. The Cable Guy. The Cable Guy. When the truth is found to be Not Larry the Cable Guy, the Cable Guy. Though they did place a call to Larry the Cable Guy's agent before releasing this. Oh, God. And being like, they had a whole talk about whether or not they could still call it the Cable Guy. Clearly, Larry the Cable's Guy career turned out fine after this, but this was coming out at the time of his, like, peaking up. Sure. Oh, fascinating. Okay, I, I did not know that at all. Yeah. This movie has a lot of, like, behind-the-scenes silliness. Sure. So, for example, I'm just going to start right off the bat. Jim Carrey kind of is the reason this movie tanked. Okay. Which would not have been what I thought. Right. No, no, no. Not because of his acting. Okay. Yeah, because his acting is great. His acting is wonderful. He plays... The unnamed cable guy who then takes on several names. And he's great. And he's fantastic as Chip backslash Larry backslash whoever he's deciding to be today. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Jim Carrey wrecked it because he was off of his amazing year of like simultaneously Ace Ventura and In the Mask and doing all of his big parts. And so he was like... I'm going to go get an exorbitant amount of money from these people. Mm -hmm. So he took his lawyers who were all dressed up as Ace Ventura to, and I quote, um, still stay grounded. And the lawyers somehow argued a $20 million contract for Jim Carrey, which is the most any actor had been paid at all. Which that right there real quick is... An amazing trivia night answer. Like, yeah. the question of just just the fact that at one point in time, Jim Carrey was the highest paid actor in Hollywood. Correct. Is mind-blowing. But please, so go on. So he gets a $20 million raise. Well, no, and it's, it's poignant to mark on because, like, for example, Matthew Broderick was only making $2 million for this movie. Mm-hmm. And... So he makes $2 million, the network goes, okay, yes, absolutely. We're, I think, paramount. We can do this. We already paid a hundred, or we already paid $1 million to get the rights for the script in a betting war. Mm-hmm. What's 20 more? It's fine. <laughs> 20 more when this has an estimated budget of 47 so. Correct. So just a little bit less than half. Going just into Jim Carrey's pocket. Exactly. So then all of the other production companies are like, well, fuck this because word in Hollywood spreads fast, especially among chatty actors. And so now all the actors are going, well, he gets 20 million. So why don't I get anything more? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So that starts raising, you know, actors' rights, roughly feathers. So this film, which is like good, good, it's, it's good, it's good, it's it's uh, it's not capital G good, is like the reasoning behind why actors get paid millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars for project nowadays. Correct. I love that. That's insane. And then people decided to spread rumors, most especially executive producers for other production companies decided Mm. to spread rumors that this movie was terrible. Right. Which then leaked down to the assistant executive producers, which leaked down to the little people who then went to talk to their aunts and uncles and cousins and best friends and baristas and the guy who sells them mice for their snakes or whatever hey by the way the cable guy sucks you shouldn't go see it Mm. and the movie tanks and only makes 60 million dollars right because of jim carrey because of jim carrey because of caddy like hollywood executives that is like just such a weird snowball effect but i love very much that like in this film jim carrey makes 20 million dollars matthew broderick makes two million dollars and Leslie Mann meets her husband. <laughs> she got that MRS degree. She yeah. said, I'm going to be Mrs. Apatow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so that's a really great behind-the-scenes thing about the cable guy. But what is the movie about? It's about Matthew Broderick getting kicked out of him and Leslie Mann's apartment because Leslie Mann is unsure about their relationship when Matthew Broderick proposes. Mm -hmm. So he's in his little bachelor pad. And while in his bachelor pad, he's setting up his internet and his um, cable. Yeah. Because this came out in 1996. So like it was cable... Oh, and then, yeah, go ahead and add the internet. Yeah, I'm realizing I said the internet. Like, oh, yeah, of course they'd have that. And then I was like, wait, no. No, no. Anachronism. Mm -hmm. He's setting up cable. So, and he's just making small talk with this guy. And he had just gotten off the phone with character Jack Black, who is like, hey, like, maybe throw him a 50 and he'll give you the skin channels, whatever. Yep. And so he jokingly says that. And then it's really uncomfortable for two seconds. And he's like, hey, man, I'm just kidding. And then Jim's Jim Carrey's character leans in and says, no, no, I'm going to be obsessed with you now. Yes. And so the rest of the movie is Jim Carrey taking over Matthew Broderick's life. And being a, like, serial stalker and that one kind of friend that, like, you should never actually engage with. Who just likes you a little too much. Who likes you a little too much and then a little too much becomes a lot too much. And then like you're genuinely frightened for aspects of your life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know <laughs> like everyone has. Like everyone has. But yeah, so you, you touch on the anachronism and it's so interesting because this movie dates itself so clearly just by the core premise of it being the cable guy. Right. And the central issue being getting your cable hooked up, which up until like a couple of years ago was still a thing you had to do. 
but it would always be like internet providers, especially Bright House in Florida, mm -hmm. like tied together internet and cable. So you couldn't buy internet unless you bought cable. Or like you could, but it was double, even though you were getting less of a thing. It was it was very strange. And I think we are just finally like in a world where nobody is actually caring about cable television except for like hotels at this point. Yeah, probably. So this is like as clearly dated as a World War II film. <laughs> at this point for for no other reason than that well and i'm i'm thinking also like you used to have phone thrown in because there was a time where you couldn't get on the phone if someone was on the internet and that was a whole thing or you mm -hmm. could but you had to pay more i don't know i was nine right but that so specifically puts it in a time and a place just and i think that's what makes it so good is it's so insular onto itself but I was going to say, the thing that's so fascinating to me about this is this movie can exist without being about cable. It just yeah. happens that it does. But th what this movie is really about is about a certain type of guy, a certain type of <laughs> incel, if sure. I may, if I may borrow the term. Sure. Who absolutely exists and exists in such a more prominent space now than i feel like they did in the 90s but maybe not because this is like just nail on the head that one guy who you give like one pity interaction to and all of a sudden they are like you are their new best friend and they are obsessed with you have you ever had that friend i was always pretty good about like cutting the cord and like like a normal human being, not like Chip. Mm -hmm. The person always kind of had the like decency to realize, oh, we're not actually, this isn't going to be a thing anymore. Okay, that's fine. I was going to say like, oh, I've had that interaction with dudes that I wasn't actually all that interested in. And that kind of leads to the other point of like, this movie is so much more fascinating because who Chip is essentially stalking and abusing right. isn't a woman. Right. The fact that it's another man makes it that much more... Not to say that, like, oh, it wouldn't be interesting if it was... But it would have been predictable if it was a man stalking and abusing a woman. It would have been predictable. It would have been darker. Oh, yeah. And this, is, sure. al this is already still, like, a dark movie in some ways. But, like... There's so much that this would just be so much worse if there was that added sexual romantic component that there just isn't with the Steven and Chip interaction. Right. It would have been the kind of gross hot at first and then it just would have gotten scary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which I know um, you were telling me before we recorded was actually almost what they did. Yeah. It was um, a 
first script or a second script and then it got leaked and then someone reported on it and they were mm. like, well, well, now we can't do that anymore. Sure. And they were like, all right, let's just change the gender of the person and then that's much more interesting. It is. And like, this is an interesting movie. This is a fun movie. This was something that you and I were very trepidatious and nervous about and thought this was going to be another death to Smoochie. Yeah. And like this was so much better than those expectations. Yeah, because I don't know what it was. Was it the writing that made it better? Was it? I think it was the writing made it better. I I think it was better on every level. Yeah. The writing was better. The directing was better. The acting was competent in ways that it isn't always in death to to Smoochie. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think if there's an offensive character in Cable Guy to the level that we have in Death to Smoochie with Shooter or whatever his name was. Ah, uh, yes. Um, and I don't think there is. Like, the most the most cringy offensive one is Chip. And again, that's the point. Yeah. And it's actually effective because he's the antagonist. He's not this weird comic relief side character who gets, you know, murdered horribly. <laughs> I like what you were saying about incel and Chip being a certain type of dude, but I also think Chip is um, is really obsessed. Like yeah. he had not just with uh, Matthew Broderick's character, but also with the idea of TV. Like there are moments throughout the movie where he's interacting and he's wearing kind of a costume Mm -hmm. to come across a certain way. So for example, when he meets Steven Matthew Broderick's family, he's wearing a cardigan over a collared shirt and loafers. Right. And you're like, okay, he is very much trying to um, echo Mr. Rogers and come across as like wholesome and good Mm-hmm. And then there's another scene where he's dressed up as the policeman from Chips and he's breaking into the bathroom and he's wrecking this other guy's life because he's daring to be out on a date with his new best friend's ex. Right. And so he like fucks up his life in the bathroom. Which it's so funny. I didn't get the Chips reference. I never watched Chips. Mm-hmm. I thought that he, because there's a moment where Jim Carrey is in a disguise and the disguise is very, I got Freddie Mercury. Yeah. I got like, like leather daddy kind of. Oh, okay. And I was so scared that this film was going to take that moment to go to a really like homophobic dark place. (laughs) And instead he just beats the shit out of Owen Wilson. Yep. And good, good on that. I mean, that's the other thing, like talking about the directing, um, This movie has so many overlapping shades with Death to Smoochie. They're both black comedies. They both starred comedic titans who were such comedic titans that audiences were going there expecting something other than what they got. Mm -hmm. But one of the key differences um, is you have Ben Stiller directing Cable Guy instead of Danny DeVito directing Death to Smoochie. And they're both in it again. They're both playing, you know, parts in the film. But Ben Stiller plays a complete non sequitur side character 
because there's like this subplot going on on everybody's TVs about this child actor who murdered his identical twin. Mm -hmm. And Ben Stiller plays the identical twins, which means, yeah, Ben Stiller has to act, but Ben Stiller is in like three or four scenes, very, very short, mostly by himself, and then could focus on actually making the movie Whereas Danny DeVito and Death to Smoochie had to be like doing the restaurant scene and then has the second director yell cut and then he gets off the bar stool and goes to like check it out. This movie was so much less distracted. Yeah. And this movie knew what it was trying to say better than I think Death to Smoochie did, period. Even when Ben Stiller is featured, he's featured in a storyline about a child actor whose fame ruined him and got him to the point where he murdered his brother right the whole thesis of the movie is that television ruins people television ruins relationships it stand in it stands in the way of accurate connection so even the fact of ben stiller's whole role in this movie speaks to that so him being in that in kind of a sub way just fits that and Mm -hmm. fits to the to the thesis of the movie and it fits the thesis Death to Smoochie wanted to have. I genuinely yeah. think this is the crypt apologizing. Oh, bless her heart. I think the crypt was like, oh, that one was too bad. I made you guys suffer through something needlessly. Here, have an actual good movie that you were never going to watch otherwise. Yeah, I never would have watched this movie. And it, it wasn't like our favorite movie that we've ever watched for this show. No, no, but it was really good and i i'm really trying to gauge if it seemed better than it is because we had such low expectations but like it just it is a well-made film yeah and it stars a lot of fantastic people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who would then go to be on the ben stiller show so the ben stiller show actually came out first Oh, so who would then go on to starring Cable Guy? Well, yeah, so that's the thing. Like, I, I kind of love this in my sense of, like, I always love when you just bring your friends along with you on a project. But the Ben Stiller show premiered in 1990, and this came out in 1994. So it was very clearly Ben Stiller calling up all of his friends, you know, calling up Bob Odenkirk and David Cross and very regrettably Andy Dick. And being like, hey, you want to be in my my movie that I'm making? And them all going, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell I'm yeah. There. And so you get baby David Cross. You get baby Leslie Mann. You get Judd Apatow doing like punch-ups on the film. I don't remember if he's listed as like the main writer or not. But this is a pre-knocked up, this is 40, like Judd Apatow, Judd Apatow. Um, and I, I really appreciate that. I also really appreciate that 30 years later, practically the people in this movie who are the biggest stars are arguably Jim Carrey still. Sure. And Bob Odenkirk. Yeah. Bob Odenkirk, who is in a single scene, he's in the family charades dinner scene Mm -hmm. and has like a single line. Mm -hmm. And now he's he's the better call Saul guy and he's he's getting to make John Wick movies and he can just do whatever the hell he wants and we love him for it. (laughs) 
that is a really fun thing that I don't I don't think we've quite had anything like that in any movie we've seen before where it's like, oh yeah, that dude's a literal nobody in 1994 and now he's like, he would be second build. I really like that. Um, I, I didn't mention it, but returning to cult fiction, of course, Jim Carrey, who we saw in Earth Girls Are Easy. Mm-hmm. If you hadn't scrubbed that movie from your memory, like I think I had. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Black, who we saw in Mars Attacks. See what I just said about Earth Girls Are Easy? Mm-hmm. Um, and then a really random one, Charles Napier, who we saw in The Blues Brothers. In this movie, he is the guy who arrests Steven because he's friends with Chip, quote-unquote friends. And in Blues Brothers, he's the country music singer who threatens the Blues Brothers and tells them it's going to it's gonna be hard to eat corn on the cob without any fucking teeth. Oh, the lead singer of the Good Old Boys. Yes! Oh, interesting. So Charles Napier just, like, being a random minor antagonist for the span <laughs> of, like, 20 years. Well, so he also attends the party, doesn't he? Yes, that's where you first see him, and that's where it establishes that, like, he's as close to friends with Chip as Chip actually has friends. Got it. And that's when Chip has planted all of this stolen equipment in Steven's apartment, because Mm -hmm. that's our big karaoke scene. He's loaded his home with, like, great speakers, a great TV, And says, absolutely, buddy, I'll take this all back for you. You're right. It is too extravagant of a gift. But before we do that, we need to have a great karaoke night. Yeah, right. This is our pivotal scene. In more ways than one. In more ways than one. In that, you know, Jim Carrey does a really obsessive stalkery song of Don't You Want Someone to Love You. And also happens to introduce Stephen to this really beautiful woman and tells him to get over Leslie. And Stephen has a great time with this woman and he wakes up the next morning and she's already gone and it comes out in about the same five minutes that not only has uh, Stephen slept with her, she was a pro- uh, she, she was a sex worker mm-hmm. who Chip had also slept with to try her out for him. Which is... A lot on so many levels. It's just, oh, it's so creepy. Well, and it gives me legitimate pause. And I like, I had to sit here and really chew on this. Like, the context is Chip hires a sex worker, Heather, engages in the sex worker services. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Hires the sex worker again to plant her at this party. Basically throws her at Steven. At which point, Stephen, not knowing she's a sex worker, has sex with her. And then they go on their merry way. And that is a consent issue. That is a gross breach of consent, not only from Chip's part, but on Heather's part. Yeah. Like, I think in real life, it, it is like a a thing where it's like, if you're a cop, you got to tell me. If you're a sex worker, you got to tell me. Um, and, like, it's, it's hard to try to make any sort of comparisons, mm-hmm. but it, it is like a massively fucked up thing. 
It's massively fucked up. It's also massively fucked up at one point. Chip, like, comes in, snaps a photo, and leaves. Right. And we discover it's for blackmail later on, and of course it is. But it's also like, okay, did Heather consent to the taking of a photo? Did your buddy Steven consent to the taking of a photo? Right. So there's already, like, small consent issues. And then to find out, oh, by the way, she's a sex worker. And by the way, you didn't know. And by the way, we also shared her. And don't worry, she's clean. Right. And this is early 90s. So that has some implications. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this movie follows really well the, um, like, highs and lows of an abuse relationship where it's, like, Mm -hmm. it starts off really good and then there's some abuse of property or some humiliation. So he, like, threatens to take out his cable. He humiliates him at the medieval time scene by making a big deal about it. And then you have your honeymoon scene. He brings home, like, $4,000 worth of electronic equipment right but also i bought you a stripper and then it's immediately abuse and lack of consent right and there's you know there's several friend breakup scenes Mm -hmm. which always carry that like same dark tension of like i'm gonna tell you like it is and i'm really gonna hope that you don't like attack me for it yeah which eventually leads to uh chip like hiding in leslie mann's ducks and like popping out and convincing her to go off to a second location with him presumably so he can murder her which okay that's so interesting that in a movie that the whole point is like oh it's gonna be this like play on the serial stalker abusive relationship, but it's going to be two guys and it's going to be about friends. It still has the same ending beat where the woman is somehow the one in danger. Lulz, ain't it great to be a gal? That's how this movie hasn't aged well. Oh, there are many ways this movie hasn't (laughs) aged well. Fair, fair enough. But that's, that's chief among them. How Leslie Mann's character gets treated throughout the movie she is an object chip and steven talk about winning her back Mm -hmm. and there are many times where chip says oh it's easy just here's what you have to do right and i think the point is it's that classic thing of like we know this is shitty that's why we're having the shitty character say it yeah but the actual utility of leslie mann's character in the actual script is still yeah she's she's the MacGuffin she's the prize she's the thing to be fought over and won in the end. Mm-hmm. She's the one who routinely states separate desires like the desire to see other people and give it a shot, and then the movie just doesn't let her actually have that for one reason or another. And it has to be stated Matthew Broderick plays a complete schmuck. Oh, yeah. No, he's not a good guy. No, he is an asshole. And there is a component where it's like you kind of enjoy watching him get his comeuppance Mm -hmm. because he is such like he he just is a schmuck, a capital S schmuck. But Leslie Mann didn't deserve any of that. She just wanted to watch Sleepless in Seattle. 
And her boyfriend, ex-boyfriend told her he got HBO. <laughs> and she comes over and she's like, I'm so excited to watch this movie. Yeah. And I think that's the other reason I think this movie is a, is a love letter to TV. The idea of like, here's how TV simultaneously brings us together and tears us apart. You know? The thing that breaks my heart about Chip... Going back into something we were talking about. Chip exists. There are dozens of chips, listener, in your, like, three-block radius, probably. Chip is the kind of person who actually is, like, a real kind of person. And if, like, if this movie took place in 2022, Chip would be really into 4chan, and then he would like probably like fall down a right alt wing rabbit hole because there would be people who could actually talk to him. There's the moment where Chip buys all of this electronic equipment. When I first saw it, it, it actually in a kind of way like made me really sad for Chip because I was sitting here being like, you know, he spent every cent he has to buy this stuff because he thought this is how I actually get a friend is mm-hmm. I buy them a new stereo system and they make him so comedically evil by the end where it's like, he's done this several different times to several different people under several different names. He is like a, a cartoonish villain. Right. But that guy, that guy that Judd Apatow and Ben Stiller and David Cross, like kind of knew and made a movie about that guy exists. Yeah, this is this movie is the Joker before there was Joker. Yes. It's very I don't know. You can take it far back as you want to. You could say this guy is Holden Caulfield. You could say this guy is the preacher from that one movie we watched that started with the kids in the sky. <laughs> I know exactly which one you're talking about. But that's how I summarize it. You know, the one with the kids in the sky. Uh, yes, dear listeners, uh, that is that would be Night of the Hunter. Check out episode 54, Night of the Hunter. There were kids in the sky. One of my favorite podcasts is um, Spirits, where there is one really well-spoken, fantastic host who has years and years and years of like mm. historian study, folklore study. She's probably got a doctorate in five different things. And her chaos best friend who's like i'm here as color commentary and that alone and that's kind of the vibe i feel like we have well except we switch back and forth at a moment's notice who is what that's very very fair yeah no i i agree I, i i agree but in like a shared kind of way i have a question for you okay well two really the first one Do you think this movie accurately predicted modern media consumption? Well, there's this monologue that Jim Carrey has where he's like, he says it multiple times throughout the movie, at least twice, if not three times, Mm -hmm. where he talks about how in the future, you'll be able to play some kind of game with your friend in Tokyo and you'll be able to do this crazy thing and watch this at the same time. Yeah, specifically the thing is like, there's going to come a point where like, you can play a game on your VCR. 
mm-hmm. with your friend in Tokyo. And like, yeah, the internet is cropping up at the same time that this film is being written. So like somebody, you know, made a an educated guess about that. But like, it is just kind of uncanny how close that gets when you think about like modern day video game equipment especially mm-hmm. being something that you can load up a streaming service on like i only i don't have a vcr i don't have a dvd player i don't have a satellite system i have an xbox and that xbox has netflix and hulu and disney plus and when I'm tired of watching a show, I can load up Fortnite and play with people all across the world. Oh my god, you play Fortnite? No, I'm just picking a game. <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm going to tease you so much. I've played Fortnite, I probably shouldn't admit this to you now, but... <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to tease you so much. It just, it's, very, it's very interesting to me how, like... They got that one almost exactly right. Mm -hmm. It's like how there's a ride at Disneyland that was built in the 50s, but it very clearly has a Zoom call taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it works in the opposite way, too, because apparently it very accurately portrays the medieval times. Okay. Okay. We're going to get to my other question now. You You got words. I just need our listeners to know that we're sitting and watching this movie and Andy said the words, well, that's not how the show goes. And then I look down and realize, oh my God, my best friend in the whole wide world knows the Medieval Times show so well, he can look at one thing and go... No, that's not how it's supposed to go. I lived in Orlando, Florida for 16 years, and I was visiting several years like before that for spring breaks and stuff. It's not that I've been to medieval times a gazillion bajillion times. I've been like four times, but the last time I went, it was like a year or two into my marriage, so it was like three years ago. And I just remembered how the show went. I went to the medieval times that they filmed at one time in seventh grade. And that is the only time I have been to medieval times. (laughs) I grew up in California and moved to Florida. I still haven't seen medieval times four fucking times, Andrew. Well, frankly, you're missing out if you like high-flying stunt action and, like, to see some horses run around. And greasy chicken food and Janine Garofalo gruffly taking an order, (laughs) which was just... It was very fun to see baby Janine Garofalo. It was perfect. Yes, but no, I mean, obviously, um, they also don't have audience members bribe the staff and then, like, get to fight in the arena. Well, maybe not the ones you go to, Andy, but that one time that I went to the one that they filmed this. Maybe it's just the one in California, (laughs) then, is what's going on there. Um, Yes, I will will wear my little paper crown with pride. And I will say the best dinner theater show you can go to in Orlando, Florida, isn't Medieval Times. It isn't even the Pirate's Adventure. It's absolutely not the Dollywood one. It's the one that is about, like, 
30s gangsters and it's actually a musical and there's an italian food buffet and it's called capones and it's great and they can sponsor us and i will say this every episode <laughs> capones where we like things colton campy capones the carl's jr of orlando dinner theater i'm so happy <laughs> Oh, to get to what I was going to ask, what, my my second question to you, what social commodity do you think could actually, like, say they want to remake this. Mm, Okay. They take out cable that's a modern day remake. What do they add in? Because streaming doesn't work like that. No. The internet guy? The, the cell phone guy. The guy guy who you have to go interact with for like two hours when you get your phone changed out. Oh, I blocked that out because I hate it so much. (laughs) I've actually watched you have to interact in a like AT&T or wherever and get a new cell phone. And yes, you did look like you hated every second of it. I just, uh, I don't want to be there. Let me just hand you this piece of plastic that makes my life go buzz. And then you can do what you need to do. I'll go get my nails done. I'll come back in two hours and you'll hand me the phone and it'll be done. And I'll go, thanks. Here's 20 extra dollars Mm -hmm. for me not having to small talk with you and stand here awkwardly in this overstimulating room. Thank you. But now imagine that person like tells you that, tells you that like, Oh, I can get you double the data if if you want, and like then tries to make small talk, and you like you make the small talk because you're stuck there, whatever. And he's like, "Oh, hey, yeah, you're really cool, man. Hey, listen, I don't do this for everybody, but do you like, do you want to see how they make the phone microchips? Like, do you want to see how they create all that stuff? It's in the back, and you go, uh, uh, sure, I'm stuck here for two hours, and so you go in the back and you hope he doesn't murder you, and he doesn't." And then, like, as you're leaving, you're like, hey, yeah, thanks for the double upgraded phone. He's like, oh, yeah, sure, man. Hey, you want to get pizza sometime? That That is the only thing I can think of. Because that is the only social commodity that isn't voluntary at this point. Like, you don't go into the AT&T store because you want to. Mm, yeah. You go in there because your phone got ran over. Or got dropped in the ocean. (laughs) Or got dropped in the ocean. Because you were a manic pixie dream girl and you decided to go jump in the waves. (laughs) Um, Okay, I will say the difference between you and me, I'm never going in the back. That guy's going to murder me or rape me. Oh, God, okay. Okay, bring it there. (laughs) I'm also not going in the back. I'm not making small talk with the guy. Mm. But, like... That is how I could see them doing this script. Yeah. You know. Or, okay, or, if not the phone guy, uh, the food delivery guy. Oh. Because they know where you live. Yeah. Oh, yes. I have a gal friend who ordered food, had it delivered, answered the door because she's a nicer person than I am. Whereas I'm like, feed me, you peasant, leave it at my door. (laughs) Um, Answered the door, you know, had like, thank you, nice weather we're having kind of conversation. And then the person texted her later 
from his phone because he still had her number. Oh, I hate it. And said, hey, you seemed really cool. Do you want to? There you go. Also, don't you have a slightly parasocial relationship with like a certain uh, person who brings groceries? Oh, no. My kickback driver named Driver Robert. Yes, Driver Robert. I've never actually met Driver Robert, though. Indeed. But, like, Driver Robert has gone there enough to your apartment enough times that, like, he knows when he's delivering food to your apartment. Oh, my God. (laughs) And this is why Alex keeps knives in every room. Indeed. (laughs) No, you've, you've hit it. Because that more than the phone thing... That is truly like the modern day, because especially post-pandemic, like Kickback, DoorDash, Grubhub, like that was like a peculiarity Mm -hmm. five years ago. Now it is like what everybody does, because why wouldn't you just have food delivered to your house? And you're right. Those people know where you live. Theoretically, they come to know who you are well enough. And all it would take is somebody, like, being there and holding up your Chinese food and is like, oh, hey, man, they didn't have blah, blah, blah. So I, like, I got you extra stuff. And, oh, oh, I never asked this, but, like, I'm really thirsty. Can I come in for a cup of water? And boom, you got a horror movie. (laughs) Oh, that just made me, like, physically uncomfortable. (laughs) Fair, fair enough. Speaking of physically uncomfortable, this film ends... With our main love interests getting trauma bonded. Oh yeah, you mean as I watch someone fall onto a cable dish and die? He's supposed to die. I was so sure he was gonna die. Oh wait, that's right. He doesn't die. No, Jim. This film ends with Jim Carrey taking Leslie Mann to the satellite dish, and I swear to God, I've seen the satellite dish in a million films. It's like the mm-hmm. one giant satellite dish set they had in the 90s, and they just kept using it to get their money's worth. And it ends in like a climactic thing where Matthew Broderick is like holding on to his hand as Jim Carrey has like jumped off the edge, and Jim Carrey, like, doubles down on this thing of, like, no, it's better if I'm not around and I'm dead. And, like, let's go over Matthew Broderick's hand and falls. And you, you're you sitting there going, like, oh, holy shit, Ben Stiller. You're going to end this movie by killing Jim Carrey? That's metal as fuck. And instead, he miraculously and completely implausibly just like breaks his back or something. And he's airlifted in a helicopter. And the movie ends with the EMT guy in the helicopter being like, it's going to be okay, pal. It's going to be okay, buddy. And Jim Carrey like lifts his pathetic little head and is like, are you really my buddy? And the guy's like, yeah, sure, man. Because he doesn't want him to go to shock and die. And that's how we get the helicopter guy. But, like, we're left to believe that that Matthew Broderick and Leslie Mann are, like, they're good. They're going to be okay. They figured it out. I'm trying to remember if there's, like, one last scene of them, like, happy in a, in a home. I don't think so. But, like, the, the idea is, okay, no, they're good. They figured it out. And I'm just sitting there being, like, no, they're trauma bonded. 
the only reason. He's still a schmuck. She still deserves better. But they're going to stay together because she's not going to be able to look at anybody else in bed and go, hey, remember when that guy almost killed himself in front of us? Hey, remember that time when we almost witnessed a murder? You know. <laughs> you know, like you do. Like you do. Um. So is this movie cult? I think this movie is cult because, like, I can remember being, like, seven or eight in a Walmart. And I saw this in the, like, bin of loose DVDs that were five for ten bucks or whatever it was. And I turned to my dad and I go, hey, dad, it's Jim Carrey. Oh, it's Ace Ventura. It's the guy. And my dad just goes, oh, no, that movie, I heard that movie sucks. Yeah, because the executive producers dicked him over. Exactly. And so I just, like, for the rest of my life, I hear about that this is, like, a really weird black comedy. And, like, Jim Carrey's totally playing a different character than normal, which he's not. He's super not. He's still himself. He's just playing a villain. Which is not even the first time, because this came out a year after Batman Forever, where he plays the Riddler. But, like, I never actually gave this movie a shot. And I think it actually has, like, an intelligent, clear thing to say. It says its message effectively and, like, is funny and entertaining. And the vast majority of people who watch movies, period, don't know this and will probably never know this. And then they'll listen to our podcast, and now they will. And then they'll listen to our podcast. I think this is cult. I also, this is how you know IMDb is is total lies. This is rated lower than Death to Smoochie on IMDb. I'm going to throw things. Because so many people are just like, oh, I heard that's garbage, low rating. But no, I mean, it, it, it fits the financials. It's... It's not exactly quotable, but, you know, it, that, that, that's kind of an insinuary one. Well, and it's also, it's quotable in the Jim Carrey way where it's like, oh, I'm sure he, he does something stupid at one point. He's, um, <laughs> he's in a parking garage and he does the, ha, cha, 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 like the stalkery noise oh, yeah, yeah. from Halloween, like the, ha, cha, cha, cha. I can't do it. I'm going to put a drop of the Friday the 13th scary noise. The, the one that I can't watch when the lights are out. That applies to a lot of them. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I think this is absolutely cool. I also think it is an incredibly delightful time. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Again, it's not the favorite, but it wasn't bad. It was fun. It was kind of fun to watch. You know what is the favorite and is fun and kind of fun to watch? Any movie with Kevin Bacon? Any movie with Kevin Bacon. Any movie with Kevin Bacon. You brought it up, you get to go first. Okay. Absolutely. I'm happy to lead us in our, our episodic game of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, and... I have made it very clear I really like to take, like, my favorite actor from a movie and just figure it out with that actor. And in this movie, you have little baby Jack Black, who's not as baby as he was in Mars Attacks. But still pretty baby. But still pretty baby. You also get a, a random cameo from Kyle Gass. Yes. Which lasts five seconds and is delightful. <laughs> 
Um, but Jack Black is in this, and Jack Black was also in a uh, a new movie that I'm dying to see called Weird: The Al Yankovic Story. Oh yeah, I want to see that too. Starring Diana Radcliffe in Weird: The Al Yankovic Story um, is Rain Wilson, Dwight from The Office. Yes. And Dwight from The Office, Rain Wilson, is in Super with Kevin Bacon. And you want to talk about extremely fucking black comedies. Super is... Super is one of dark. them. So I was able to do it in two. Okay, I can also do it in two. Okay. Because of the brilliant Leslie Mann. Oh, wonderful. Because she was in Knocked Up with Adam Scott. Indeed. And Adam Scott was in Black Mass with Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah, he was. <laughs> Black Mass is a good gangster movie. That's all I'll say. Ooh, I'm intrigued. But I'm also intrigued by your Oscar. Can you tell me what it is? Yeah, I, I kind of talked about it before. But just like, I would like to give the cable guy the Oscar for most accurate prediction of incel behavior. Sure. Because like, okay, I was two. I don't know the socio-landscape of the mid or the early mid-90s in that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this guy existed then and was patently obvious and, like, clear. But what I do know is this guy is clear now, this kind of person that Chip is. And it's not like a social pandemic or anything, but it kind of is. Everybody knows a guy who, like, everybody has a weed dealer who really wants to be your friend, but he's just your weed dealer, and mm. you're never going to let him be anything else. I nod like I understand, like I've ever Well, maybe thought. maybe it's not your weed dealer <laughs> or, you know, but everybody everybody is that one coworker who is insufferable and always asks you to go to drinks. Oh, my God. Yes, Kyle. So everybody has a Kyle. (laughs) So that is my Oscar. What is your Oscar? My Oscar is the Oscar for... um, Oh, my Oscar is for most inappropriate game to play at a family dinner. (laughs) At one point in this... Because we're not going to talk about it anywhere else. But at one point in this movie, the game is trying to get your family members to guess an inappropriate thing. Right. And so, like, Matthew Broderick and his mom are paired up, and he's like, I'm not going to have my mom say vagina. Right. And so the whole deal is like, Chip keeps getting Leslie Mann to say all these things, which are, you know, like, sexual words. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, they, they call a name to it, and I can't remember what that is. But, like, I am not the level of white that this required no. to, like, know what is going on. It does not seem like an actual game that anyone would want to play. No, absolutely not. So, in that peculiarity, it is a very good Oscar, I think. Yes. Mm. And hopefully our next movie will have some worthy Oscars as well. Hopefully our next movie will be a peculiarity, at the very least. (laughs) Hopefully an enjoyable one. 
and yes, that's a great time to bring up the fact how every episode of Cult Fiction, we pick our next movie by putting our faith into the Hollywood crypt. We do that through the application of a random number generator and my giant curated list of 275 films, all of which are hopefully cult. And for the next one, we are going to be looking at number 176. And number 176 is uh, a movie that is going to be tied in very easily in one specific way. Um, Oh God, I don't actually know if this is cult. But next time on Cult Fiction, we're going to be verifying that by watching the 2003 Will Ferrell comedy Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. I have avoided this movie for my entire life, and I'm so upset. Oh, now I'm, now I'm invested. I'm so happy. I have never seen this movie specifically on purpose because everyone watched Anchorman and everyone was walking around for a year and a half going, I'm Ron Burgundy. And I hated it. And now I have to watch it. Now you have to watch it and give your critical assessment of it. (laughs) Well... That's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. Join us next time, or you can keep up by following us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time where, guys, like, what do I even say? Like, where we find out if milk was a bad choice, where we find out if Ron Burgundy loves anything as much as he loves his dog Baxter, when we find a, a, a rainbow with pandas on the other end, and, and if people have sex at the end of it. What the f- <laughs> I'm throwing out the most obscure ones I can just to make Stephanie uh, upset. Join us next time we find out whether or not it does in fact work 100% of the time, 60% of the time. As we watch Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Hey.